Welcome to a special edition of At Home on Air from At Home with Growing Olders, 4th Annual AGEN on Saturday, June 17th, 2023, on the topic of Creature Comforts, the Human-Animal Bond in Healthy Aging. Part 1 of this episode features Alice Wingwall, a photographer and film editor whose unique work is influenced through her creative engagement with her declining vision. She has continued to evolve her artwork with the help of her guide dogs. Her images tell the story of this relationship. Alice introduces our day of exploration. Part two of this episode features our panel discussion. The panel moderator is Chris McCarthy, a change rebel and healthcare innovator. Panelists include Sherry Franklin, the founder and CEO of Muttville Senior Dog Rescue. Evan Johnson, a theater maker, teaching artist, and the Prana Director at Elder Ashram. Maddie Krasno, the Grants and Foundation Specialist for Woodstock Farm Sanctuary, who also shares insights about living with her emotional support animal, her dog, Millie. And Annalee Nilsson, a clinical nurse specialist at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, who is incorporating robotic cats and dogs into the care of patients with dementia with the Acute Care for the Elderly team. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of At Home On Air. Wingwall. I am a photographer. I am a photographer who happens to be blind. I am not a blind photographer. And I have now for many years used a guide dog. I'm now on my fourth guide dog. I believe I began that in 1987 with my first guide dog, Joseph. I have been working with a cane, a regular blind cane for a long time. I had majored in art at Indiana University as an undergraduate and at UC Berkeley as a master's in fine arts in California. And I had started cane training, but before you had to use the cane to tap your way through. Tap, 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 tap. I hated that. And after I did that for a while, I was very annoyed by the sound of it. Because at that time, I was getting most of my information through sound. And I didn't like that kind of background. So I started thinking, uh, would I do better with a dog? I had no idea what it would be like to go to training uh, for a guide dog. So I filled out the papers and sent them in. And they told me it would be many months before I might get a dog. But shortly, I got a call saying somebody had canceled their slot to come into the school because they didn't want to be away from home for Thanksgiving. 
So I could come for the month of November, 1987. There's a beautiful campus and we were able to walk around the campus with our dogs. And Joseph was a very interesting dog. He was pretty white. He was a yellow lab, but he was what they also called a champagne color. Very white, with just a few spots of yellow on him. And, and he was very, a very hard worker with beautiful eyes. And I thought, I believe I said at the time or from people talking to me that um, he was my angel dog. He helped me get places. You, you start that, I start the bonding almost immediately. But the amazing thing about Joseph is that he was such a good model. He was suggesting to me, well, should I pose like this? Or do you want one paw up higher? And it was interesting to me because these dogs are fast. I mean, I don't mean in speed, but quick to learn. They, they make up their own minds. They're, they never put you in danger in that way. It's just interesting. My second dog, Slater, and Slater was, I would call him the goofball, um, kind of a joker. He, it was raining and raining in the February that I got Slater. So we actually had to go inside the Northgate Mall um, in San Rafael to be out of the rain. But inside the um, Northgate Mall and Macy's, I guess, he, he kept looking to the right, looking to the right. And I said to the instructor, well, what is he doing? <laughs> and he said, he's window shopping. He would window shop in the neighborhood. Um, one wonderful thing he did later was I was going out with a bunch of Christmas packages and uh, we started down the street. And at that point, I already had my third dog because this was later in Slater's life. And, and he had just had a uh, surgery for spleen. And um, so we started down the street and then I realized he was sniffing too much. This was not my new dog, Rumba. This was Slater. So I made him turn around and I said, let's go home. And he turned around, but he didn't turn once more onto our street. He was going, he crossed the street and went down to a place called P.O. Pack. And I hated the guy who ran that place because he always called me, honey, would you like to do this? You want to mail your packages? And, but Slater chose to go there when I told him to go home. So of course he was disobeying me, but he was so proud that he knew where to go to mail those packages. And let's see, then we had Rumba. And Rumba was, I think you mentioned that she might have been my soulmate and she was. And it's very difficult for me to explain how this happened because all these dogs were good. They were very good but they didn't cross a certain line, which Rumba did to protect me in some other, you could almost say some spiritual way. Um, I'm not a religious person at all, but she was just in the heart. And 
we could almost not bear to be separated from each other. And one day when I came home from Florida, later in her life, <clears throat> she was sitting on the top of our porch. And she, when she saw the car pull out, my husband had gone to get me at the airport and bring me home. She just broke the boundaries and she came running down all the stairways to us and came up to me and almost tried to hug me. And so I just took hold of her and hugged her because it, in her mind, she knew we had to be together and why had we been gone for a week and she wasn't there with me. So this penetration of spirit, I think is unusual in a dog. They're so trained that you mightn't expect that would happen, but it did. And the next day, even she, I think she had run up on a, a big um, wooden platform we had at home and it was raining again. I think she slipped and fell. So she had, we found out uh, an hour or so later, she had shattered one of her legs entirely. So my daughter and her partner brought her in and put her on a mattress in the kitchen. And then they took her to guide dogs. They couldn't do any surgery on it. Um, and so I told my daughter, I said, come get me and take me back over to guide dogs. And then they had me talk to her for a while. And then they gave her the shot for euthanization. And I was just able to caress her a lot. And then the vet said, she's dead now. And that was almost more than I could take. There was a, a period between my getting Buttercup, my fourth and last dog, because um, they didn't tell me, but they really had an age limit. So they made up other excuses why I couldn't have a dog. And finally, I learned what the real reason was. And then Buttercup appeared. And Buttercup was so calm which is, was their big, uh, an older person. They were always afraid we would fall over the dog and damage the dog. I went to Florida uh, two months after I got her uh, because I usually meet my sister and my nieces and my daughters in Florida somewhere. And, and when the plane was landing in Florida, she was looking intently at the guy across the aisle from me. <laughs> he said, um, your dog has been looking into my eyes. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, your dog has been looking into my soul. And I said, she does that very well. And so she's, she may be the most considerate dog because she's watching all the time to see if everyone is okay. So she expanded herself a little bit beyond me to check on my husband as well. How's it going? How's it going? Um, I've had the range of the very active um, to the super smart, and they're all pretty super smart. But it's an experience that it's hard to explain to anyone else because you start you start looking at each other. I, of course, I can't see, but I'm looking at the dog. I am perceiving the qualities in these dogs and they respond and we learn from each other every single day. 
And I just think it's almost impossible to know what that's like. Because once you start working with them, you're always regarding each other. And I'm I'm going to give a command, but she's looking at me, okay, okay, that's it. Then looking again to see if she did it well. So I think that's the kind of return that a lot of people would never understand. And I'm not sure I would myself. I just know that once you've bonded, you're in it for good. And the dog understands that. And I understand that. So it's not just the physical activity, but it's a kind of mental state that we get into as we go forward. And I appreciate that immensely. I don't know how to explain it, but they're all fantastic workers. And I hope I've been as a good worker or a good person giving orders to the dogs that I've come to love over, let's see, since 1987 to the present. I'm a longtime lover of animals. They've been in my life, my entire life. I was born into a house that had a free range bunny, cat, and dog, and they all cuddled together and they could do whatever they want. So that's how I entered the world. I also, at a very young age, understood the power of healing from animals. So as a young kid, I didn't have a lot of friends. I was brutalized for being queer, and animals were my refuge. They helped with my mental health. Uh, happy Pride, everybody. And those animals really did guide me. They really did help with my healing. And as a Catholic kid, I also deeply appreciated St. Francis and the divine connection that he had with animals. And so that meant something to me. That meant that there is this divine spiritual connection. And I think Alice told us a little bit about that in her story. So, oh yeah, and I have a cat and dog now. <laughs> I have a dog named Parker Posey, and I have a cat named Peter. And so we have Peter Parker Posey in our house. That just adds a lot of healing and joy for our household. And I'll tell you a little bit more about Peter the cat as we get into this, into this panel. So with that, you are about to meet some really incredible people. I've had the opportunity to spend some time with them this week. The way we're going to conduct this panel is we're going to do what I call lazy introductions. And what that means is we're going to take our time. We're going to have each panelist say a little bit about their journey with a very specific question that I will give to them. And then after we move through each one of our panelists, we'll start weaving together this intersectionality of aging and the health benefits of the animal-human bond. So that's the journey we're going to go on for about the next hour or so. Did you know that there is a therapy that is equal to and sometimes more effective than our best drugs? And did you know that there is a therapy that is better than some of our best medical interventions? It's 100% organic, few side effects except for slobber and a little bit of love, a lot of love, and that is our animals. There are randomized controlled trials that have already helped us understand that for mental health, it reduces anxiety, stress, depression, and is tackling the epidemic of loneliness. For brain health, we know that it is helping slow down the onset of Alzheimer's, and it's also helping to prevent dementia. 
For physical health, which is probably the best known, we know that it reduces obesity and increases our cardiovascular health. And even something as specific as cancer, it improves the quality of life of people with cancer, it helps with pain management, and even early detection of cancers. There are studies now that show some animals are better detectors of cancer than our best lab tests. So with that intro, I'd like to introduce our first panelist, which is Maddie Krasno, passionate about primate conservation and eager to follow in the footsteps of Jane Goodall. She took a job as an animal caretaker in a primate research lab during college. And this experience led her to a much deeper exploration. So, Matt, hello, yes. good morning. <laughs> good morning. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your mental health journey with animals? Yes, I can. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, I want to premise this by saying that I think it's, it's common as we've you know, heard from Alice and heard from Chris and so many of us that we, especially at a young age, love animals. We learn to love animals and appreciate them. But I think we live in a society that sort of teaches us to love them and sometimes, you know, also harm them. And so when I went to college, I was looking up to Jane Goodall. I still look up to Jane Goodall. She's amazing. I decided I wanted to follow in her footsteps. And I took a job at a primate research center wanting to get experience caring for monkeys, thinking, you know, this is a great step to take. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I just knew that I loved animals. I went on to learn that there are a lot of people like me that end up in animal research labs because they love animals and don't realize what they're going to be participating in, exposing themselves to, mm -hmm. and what the long-term implications are, especially for our own mental health. So, you know, while society is telling us that it's okay to exploit these animals in certain ways, it was going like directly against what felt right to me. And that ended up having a pretty intense impact on my mental health. I think I was undiagnosed with anxiety, but I'm a very anxious person. <laughs> Eventually got that diagnosis. It took years for me to finally get diagnosed with PTSD, which was attributed to my time in the lab. Because as someone who cared so deeply for animals to be doing things that felt completely, you know, counter to what I wanted to be doing, helping them, was really damaging. I went on after that to work in kind of the sanctuary world, so with animals who came from research labs or came from circuses, zoos, farms, and came to understand who these animals are outside of exploitation. This was healing in itself, but I wasn't facing the trauma that I had experienced. Unfortunately, I was avoiding therapy and all of those things. So eventually when the nightmares, the triggers became sort of overpowering. I eventually sought out actual professional help, aside from the sanctuaries, which I would say are professional help, but you know, had to explore my own, <laughs> what, what was deep down going on. And that was huge for me. Kind of the next step to that was meeting the individual who was in the photo with me, my dog, Millie, who kind of came into my life unexpectedly my mother will say you're welcome because she had actually sent me to a shelter to foster a dog that she thought looked like a dog we used to have and wanted me to like foster the dog and then she would adopt 
But when I went to the shelter that day and I met this 12-week-old ball of fluff who was ignoring all the other puppies and was trying to climb desperately out of this pen that she was in, and like no one was sort of paying attention to her. And so I finally just like picked her up and put her on my lap to help her. Because I could tell she was really anxious. And she just immediately like calmed down, sat on my lap, and eventually fell asleep. And I was like, okay, so I'm actually going to take this dog home. <laughs> she was asleep on my lap on the car ride home. And she was attached to me from that day onward. The attachment is very mutual. I mean, it's one of those things just kind of like how Alice said, it's hard to put into words what this person means to me. I grew up with dogs. I even had a cockatiel at one point. I now share my home with Millie and two cats. Like I've been surrounded by animals in a variety of ways, but this dog is, you know, she is my best friend. I call her my life jacket. Mental health is not something you just fix. You learn how to cope. You learn how to deal. You still have bad days and she's the one that keeps me afloat. She's the one that looks at me with this goofy grin and is like, it's time to go outside. Or <laughs> actually recently, this is a side note, but I live in an apartment. So she's like this big German shepherdy dog in an apartment. Taught her how to ring bells to let me know if she needs to go outside. And she hates when the fire alarms go off. We live in kind of a big building and everybody is sort of not great at cooking, I guess, and <laughs> constantly setting the alarms off. And when they go off, she just looks over at me and is like, we gotta get out of here, even though it's never real. And so she goes over and starts banging on the bells, being like, we gotta go, like, let's go, let's go. So she's just, she's brilliant, she's funny, she's super anxious, a very reactive dog, which is why she can't be here today. She adores people, but doesn't want another dog anywhere near me. But you know, I've come to understand her and learn how to best help her navigate the world and she is helping me to navigate the world. When Alice started talking about the third dog, I saw all of your reactions to how she talks about these dogs and you know, this is, this is exactly how I feel about Millie. I can't imagine my life without her. And it's also the way that I have come to see people when they interact with other animals, like in my work at a farm animal sanctuary, when they meet these animals and how it's sort of like, you see who they are in this place of safety and what that does to us, because it's not only healing for them, I think it is genuinely healing for us and our souls, so. <laughs> mm, wow, thank you, Maddie, for sharing that story. We all need a life jacket like Millie in our lives, for sure. Yeah. Okay, we're going to pivot a little bit to a seemingly different topic. I'd like to introduce Evan Johnson. Evan is a queer Oakland-based performer, facilitator, and producer. He designs experiences that are inclusive, age-positive, and accessible to participants. He's the program director at Elder Ashram in Oakland. You know, building systems that serve us as we age is an often neglected space in our society. There are those who are doing it. At Home with Getting Older is one organization thinking about this. So, Evan, I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and the things that you're thinking about as you design age-positive offerings? Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you all. My background is in the performing arts world. I was a theater kid from the time I could talk and move and <laughs> dance and sing. 
And funny enough, Peter Pan was the first show I saw, and it was here in San Francisco at the Golden Gate Theater. And it sort of struck me as, you know, the wonder of make-believe. And as a queer kid, happy pride, <laughs> as a life jacket, I found that theater and performance and the art of transformation was incredibly powerful for me. And finding my tribe, going out of my immediate family, going out of the town I was raised to go find my people was something I did and was driven to do. The arts really gave me an outlet to explore not just my imagination, but society at large and big questions and still is something that tugs at me and keeps me interested. I got working with elders, actually, from moving to San Francisco and being a teaching artist. I was teaching kids primarily, was then expanding my horizons and saying, let's teach a senior improv class. And I have one of my students, my first students, Helen, right here, <laughs> which is wonderful to have you here. And out of this weekly engagement with these elders doing theater and creative performance projects with them, we launched together the Cosmic Elders Theater Ensemble. And now we produce two shows a year, and I'm so grateful that that's still happening. That's the testament to the group and how that group kind of came together around this shared interest and love. And that's how I build community. That's how I've always built community and how I've survived really in this world is finding those common threads and kind of building on those. During the pandemic, I got myself a pandemic puppy named Chonky. I work at the Elder Ashram in Oakland as the program director. Actually, my title is the Prana Director, and it is an absolute honor and a gift to be at an assisted living memory care community. And I get to bring my dog to work every day, and he provides so much support and smiles, and I'm just honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Evan. <laughs> and to Chonky. <laughs> okay, we're going to slowly start weaving some of these topics together. So I'm really excited to introduce Sherry Franklin. We're going to start weaving together through her work this intersection of health benefits from animals in our lives and age-positive systems for animals and humans. Sherry is the founder and CEO of Muttville Senior Dog Rescue, an organization I think we all love, especially the mission that we yeah. know well. And it really was started and she dedicated her life to saving senior dogs from euthanasia, finding them homes and spreading the word about the value of lives. She's saved almost 11,000 dogs at this point. You're just under that, you're, you're so close. <laughs> so close, so close. The organization and Sherry have won tons of awards for this heart forward, soul forward work. So congratulations on all those awards. And Sherry, can you tell us a little bit about you and your journey and what have you learned from senior dogs? Unlike a lot of these panelists here, I did not grow up with animals. I loved them, but my family was like, no, you can't have a dog. Please, no, you can't have a dog. So I'm making up for a lot of lost time <laughs> now. <laughs> But I always had a very strong love, especially for dogs, but of all animals, very, very early in my life. I started Muttville when I was 50. So this was like a second life for me. And it was something that came about because I was seeing old dogs in shelters being euthanized. So I started taking them home one at a time and finding them homes. So no, I wasn't hoarding them. I was finding them homes. <laughs> Pre-internet, you guys, so it was really hard. It was much harder to find an animal a home before there was Facebook and you could have a website and everything else. So this was like with posters and things like that. And I was a hairstylist, so every one of my hair clients, they all ended up with dogs. <laughs> but I realized that it was a really huge, huge 
issue that goes way beyond my little local shelter, and I vowed to change that. I just saw so much beauty in these older dogs that were many times being overlooked, not getting adopted, and getting euthanized in many cases. It was actually the third senior dog rescue in the country. It was the first one in California in 2007 after I'd been doing it out of my house and going broke because I was paying all the vet bills by myself. And you can imagine what that was like. So during that formative time of me getting ready to start Muttville, my father became very ill. He suffered from many different ailments. He suffered from depression on top of cancer and Parkinson's and a lot of other things. I would call him and it would really literally be a monologue for me because he never said a word. He just sat on the phone while I talked and I'd start thinking about what am I gonna say to him today? I mean, I really started like trying to figure out what I could keep him occupied with because it was so hard to connect. And all of a sudden, one day when I called, he was animated and talking. And what had happened was a cat had showed up on his little deck where he lived, and this cat he named Zeppi, and that cat adopted him. We never had animals, so this was a real big change for him. He literally became a different person. And that was in the last year and a half, 18 months of his life. And during that time, he would call me, I would call him. I had cats too, so we bonded and we communicated and he was happy. I knew then with these senior dogs that I was gonna adopt out that it was gonna be with senior humans and that was gonna be part of our programming from the early, early stages was always to have a senior aspect, senior human aspect to our senior dog program. So it was really about the forgotten, right? The senior humans, the senior dogs, you know, people that are isolated. And this is my baby. Like some people have children starting Muttville at 50. This is my baby. We're 16 years old now, so that gives you an idea of how old I am too, I guess. We immediately started a Seniors for Seniors adoption program, which waived fees for seniors, set them up when they adopted a dog with the things that they needed, like little stairs and ramps and things that we could do without having to spend a lot of money because we had no money. But we would set seniors up with the things that would make it possible to have an animal in their life. We also started something that we then named Cuddle Club at the time, and we kept that name. So Cuddle Club started with a once a month get together of seniors that would come and cuddle dogs and then take them for a walk. What happened was, you know, it was once a month and word got around and now we do it every week. And now I was just told by Angela, who should be here later with dogs, that she wants to add another one because we are full. Everybody loves Cuddle Club and Cuddle Club is open to anybody Anybody really, but anybody over 62. We have different groups. We had a pride cuddle club yesterday for open house and we did a pride parade with the dogs. I always say it's a win-win because it's also great for the dogs to get all these cuddles. So it's, it's really like, you know, everybody's happy. We have great volunteers, a lot of seniors volunteer. I have one here I see right in front of me, Nancy Trogman, who has been a volunteer for years and years. She fosters dogs, she comes and she walks dogs, she even does laundry sometimes. It's really part of our community 
I will see a grumpy old man wheel himself into Cuddle Club, won't even smile at me, and then you put a dog in his lap and he's smiling, he's talking. You see it every day, dogs are magic. And all animals, they get you out walking, they get you up in the morning, they make community. We have communities that have started because of Cuddle Club. So I encourage everybody and anybody, especially those that don't have the lifestyle to support having an animal all the time, there's many options out there. So thank you all for being here today. This is exciting. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, how can you be grumpy at Cuddle Club? You can't. Right. No, that's just yeah. it. Yeah, By the great. time anybody leaves, there's no grumps no in the house. No more grumpiness. <laughs> thank you, Sherry. Thank you for starting to weave together where we're headed. However, we're going to jump the rails now. So, this is a topic after my own heart. Some of you might think Twilight Zone or Black Mirror. <laughs> Others may think things like the Jetsons, a much more positive future-forward technology approach. But with that, I'm very excited to introduce Annalie Nielsen. She is a nurse at San Francisco General, and she is a clinical nurse specialist on the acute care for the elderly. And she has implemented a very innovative approach to her work. So with that, I'm just going to let her share the punchline in all of this. But Annalie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what is this innovative program you brought to San Francisco General? Yes. So at San Francisco General, we used to have animal assisted therapy program where they would have a dog come to the hospital and visit the elderly. And then the pandemic happened. The hospital, who is already a scary place, became a little more scary. But also that meant no volunteers, no visitors, no family. So I noticed some of our elderly patients with dementia, they started getting really withdrawn and seemed kind of lonely. They were not interacting with the care. And then I remember I went to a nursing conference where they had these robotic pets for people with dementia. So then I applied for a grant and I was able to buy 50 cats and dogs. The response was just amazing. These patients who were sort of not really participating in the care suddenly started smiling and talking more. And also some of our agitated patients, we would give one of these to them and they become much more calm, just like petting the animal was really comforting to them. Also with the staff, I have to say, some of the nurses, because you know, hospitals during the pandemic were not the most pleasant places and there was a lot of anxiety and stress. So even the nurses started loving having these at the bedside. There was just lots of smiles and laughter. I also noticed some of the patients that used to have a cat or a dog started reminiscing about the pet that they had. And that was great, just starting a good conversation with the patients. But even some of them didn't have pets, they started bonding with these animals. It was just wonderful to see. Again, the benefits and the bonding with the animals that all of you have been talking about and the healing part of bonding with an animal, even though it's not real. And another benefit, of course, they don't need to be fed. You don't need to take them for walks. They're very easy to take care of. <laughs> we had funny instances. One of the patients really thought that it was a taxidermy pet. So they, they said, like, I hope there was a happy dog when he was alive. You know? <laughs> I was like, no, they're not. And some of them know that they're not real. Some of them really thought they were real because they started feeding them. And like one patient, we were putting cream on the patient and then the patient started putting cream on the dog. But even though some of the patients knew it wasn't real, they just felt that presence was very calming. And some of them even didn't have them on the bed. They just had it on the bedside table. And they would talk to the pet, just like, here's my friend that I'm taking care of, you know, because being in the hospital, you kind of lose some of your independence and people take care of you. But some of the patients really felt, well, this is someone I can take care of and someone that's looking out for me, you know? So yeah, that was great. 
Wonderful. You also see two other robotic pets on this end of the table. They are two mental health robotic pets. This duckling is from Afflex. They are gifted to kids with cancer, and it helps calm them during their cancer treatments. And then there's also this furable, which is a nondescript animal. <laughs> it purrs, and there's clinical trials that show just holding a purring furry object calms us down always to get these benefits. So thank you, Annalie, for your work. So now we're going to move into the second part of our panel, which is weaving this all together, trying to make sense of this intersectionality. So I'd like to continue with Anna Lee and also bring that into the conversation. Actually, all four of you, so feel free, anybody to jump in. These human health benefits that we have interacting with animals or robotic animals. I'm curious, like, what can we do to raise the awareness of these, of these really great benefits that we can have as humans? I think there's a lot of, a lot of ways to go about that. Personally and in work, one of the things that we do at the organization that I work for, which I think I've mentioned before, <laughs> but the Farm Animal Sanctuary, it's called Woodstock Farm Sanctuary, technically based in New York. I'm their one remote employee out here in California, but I do get to spend time with the farm animals and I've spent, as I mentioned, a lot of time actually working at sanctuaries with animals directly. And the like educational tours that allow people to come and meet animals directly, I think that through conversation about the animals and their experiences and also just like kind of getting to know them that really can help change people's minds no matter the species that we're talking about i think also just sort of like living the way that you want others to see i mean i know from my friends my relationship with my dog they will say that we are glued to each other and i've had multiple of them say to me like i look at the way she looks at you and it's like obvious how how she cares about you how she feels about you and so you know i can talk all i want about how amazing she is and educate on this but i also think just like modeling this behavior modeling these relationships is important i'd like to add that storytelling is the most important thing you can get out there people remember stories and you know maddie telling her story and then sharing it with friends and the way that we can talk to our friends and any of you that have dogs or even people that don't being able to tell the story of your friend that you know now has a dog who gets up and walks and who didn't go outside their house like when i talk about my dad seeing something really change and people really go wow and it can be one-on-one -on -one. it doesn't have to be to a big audience but every time you model it or tell somebody a story. We tell stories all the time to get people more interested in coming, say, to Cuddle Club or to adopting a dog. And a lot of times we have family members that come with their parent or their grandparent to pick out the animal. Once I tell the story of the man with Alzheimer's that was living with his family still and was so angry and didn't want to leave the house, and he started to take his dog that he adopted from Muttville for a walk every day, and then he knew all of his neighbors, and he all of a sudden was very happy there. And telling that story over and over to many different people, it opens up the minds of, of what animals can sort of bring to people. So storytelling. Yeah, it reminds me, there was a couple of commercials that were going around a few years ago from Habri, which is the 
Human-Animal Bond Research Institute, and they created these two commercials that they looked like drug commercials, pharmaceutical commercials. <laughs> and they kind of talked about all the benefits you were going to get and listed all the side effects, and then you found out that for the cat, the drug was called Perfectus, <laughs> uh, and for the dog, it was Best Friendor. Um, so tricked at the end that this drug was actually an animal with side effects yeah. of love and slobbering. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So storytelling is definitely a powerful. Any ideas on raising awareness besides this event, yeah. for sure? Yeah. Well, there is a lot of research going on actually with these robotic pets for patients with dementia, decreasing agitation, and also prescribing less medications because some of the patients in the hospital, they were prescribing sedatives and antipsychotics. And actually having these at the bedside, there was a reduction in prescribing those medications as well as sometimes restraining patients. They didn't have to do that because they had the pet instead. So I hope in the future the doctors can prescribe, you know, pet therapy or robotics can be available in the hospital to prescribe for the patients. And also thinking about seniors at home who are sometimes very lonely. This is a great alternative for those people, too, to have like some company at home and very yeah, low-tech. Thank, yeah. thank you, Annalie, for mentioning the clinicians. I think when we thought about this question, we were thinking about all of us, but we need to get our health system, the people who we interact with that care for us, to know about these health benefits in order to prescribe cats and dogs. Yeah. For sure. So unfortunately, we know that there's health benefits, but there's a disproportionate benefit to younger people. And that's because pet ownership continually declines from young people as you get older and older, less and less pet ownership. And there are all kinds of structural reasons on why that happens. And that's kind of where I want to pivot to now with Evan and Sherry. So maybe we'll start with Evan. Can you talk about what some of these barriers and challenges are in this space? I would say, for me, personally, I never had a dog in all my years of living in San Francisco because of apartment living and apartment hopping. I mean, instability of housing was something for me here in the Bay Area specifically, and moving to Oakland to save some money meant also having, you know, more space, and we live right next to a beautiful part of Oakland and off of Piedmont Avenue, there's a sweet little walk next to a little stream, but taking my dog out there is such a, a gift and, you know, it was that location and having the extra amount of time that the pandemic afforded us that kind of me and my partner said, let's get a dog. Oh my gosh, let's get a dog. And then in my space at the Elder Ashram, I mean, in assisted living, you mentioned dementia and Alzheimer's and these, these diagnoses, we call it forgetfulness in our community. We also talk about our own forgetfulness throughout the day, our own confusion, our own disorientation. We make it really a safe space to discuss that in the community that I work in. So yeah, in that elder space specifically, when you have court-ordered DPOAs and people who are conservators, you know, sometimes the responsible party is not always responsible. So that means that sometimes there is a barrier, a human barrier or a systemic barrier even. You know, it's just red tape. You can't actually get out the door when you want to get out the door. And that means you can't go out and go shopping for a dog or talk to Muttville, you know, without an intermediary. I take that role as an intermediary, an advocate for the elders that I serve very, very seriously. So I'm always asking them, you know, what do you need? What do you, what do you want? How can I serve you? And I think that the gatekeepers who find themselves in these positions of authority or positions of advocacy, it's really on us to provide that to the elders that are under our care. And that reminds me of Alice's comment on 
the structural barrier against her getting another yeah. guide dog just because she aged out of the program. I mean, that is an arbitrary choice that we have laid down as, as some red tape. Sherry, do you want to? Well, I mean, San Francisco, we've got rent control. We've got lots and lots and lots of stairs going everywhere. So, I mean, it's not possible for everybody to really house a dog. And it's unfortunate. And I think that's why we offer some of these other opportunities, say volunteering, cuddle clubs, going out to your local park and maybe meeting some people that have dogs. Sometimes what I've seen happen is some of the seniors or neighbors watch people's dogs for the day while they go to work. So there's there's opportunities and ways to work around that. I think for what we do, we've adopted out to 100-year-old people that have a support system in hand. Might live with their daughter or sister. So it's not going to be the age. It's actually going to be how you live and your support system. Not everybody has that. So not everybody really can have a dog, but there are lots of opportunities. You know, your neighbor in your apartment building, who knows who has a dog or a cat that might like some company during the day while you're at work or, you know, somebody else is at work. So there are ways to get your dog or cat love. I would also just say that we strive to open up you know, these people's minds, doctors' minds, and landlords' minds, hoping that people can still have an animal in their life. I think it's so, so important for health, for health benefits and mental health. We get emails all the time from isolated people that are just extremely lonely. So if you have a dog, you know, reach out to your neighbor and see if maybe that neighbor might like to, to babysit, right? I mean, a lot of people would be open to that. I hear about that a lot. So that's an idea. And you know, Sherry and others on the panel, I think you start also hinting towards that it's also community and societal health. We've been talking about the very personal health benefits, but the ability to walk out of my house with my dog gives me permission to interact with all kinds of people where me without an animal actually makes it more complicated. Mm -hmm. So there's this lifting up of community Mm -hmm. health as well. Anybody want to comment? on the community societal angle here? I just agree, yeah. I mean, I, I also have social anxiety. I feel <laughs> you on that one. Just having the dog gives me permission. Yes, I agree with all that. Wonderful. <laughs> so we've been exploring some of the barriers. We started getting into barrier busting and listing some programs. Are there other ways that we can bust these barriers or other programs we should know about? I wanted to mention that just this week we adopted out three dogs to a senior center. It is a challenge. It's not something we recommend for all of our dogs, but these three dogs all had a bit of separation anxiety. We knew that we had caretakers that were at the senior facility and they're thriving. It's been about three weeks now. So they have dogs there now. And I think that that's something that could be explored on a much larger scale. I agree. I think elder care communities, that's a really wonderful fit for places like Muttville and dog owners as well to connect to your local neighborhood elder care community. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and I I told you I'd bring Peter the cat back into this conversation. (laughs) So Peter, I cat share Peter with my mom, who's 80 years old. She didn't want the responsibility full-time. I didn't want the responsibility full-time. And so we trade Peter every several months, and he goes to Massachusetts for a while, and he comes to California for a while, and he has his own United. 
account, and it works really great. So cat sharing is a, is a thing. Chris, I thought of one more thing. I yeah. have a dear friend, Amrita, who is a colleague of mine and a mentor of mine who's here from the ashram as well. She's our ashram ambassador. I, I love our titles, Prana Director, Ashram Ambassador. But we had a dog that arrived in our community that needed rescuing this amazing puppy, mostly a pit bull puppy with the most friendly disposition, the kindest heart, and Amrita pegged right away, this is a healing dog. This is a healing dog. And uh, you know, thinking about like mutual aid and like creating a community of care, like now we have this dog. All right, where does this dog belong? You know, at the ashram, my dog and, and Madhu, Madhu is this dog, and our neighbor Becky, who also teaches yoga on Sundays, and her kids come and play chess with the elders. They have a family dog now, and my dog and their dog will be working it out as dogs do and you know it's incumbent on all of us to take care of each other Wonderful. <laughs> i want to talk about one more barrier busting a very different kind of barrier busting and just call on maddie for a moment oh, i'm gonna get teary talking about this <laughs> <clears throat> sorry i didn't think that would happen <laughs> um so you wrote a beautiful op-ed piece for the cap times in madison wisconsin i wonder if you might talk to us a little bit about the barrier busting you're doing yes so you mean like with regard to Justify or? The primate work that you're doing to what's happening. Yeah, so at the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I went to school, that is where I worked in one of their primate labs. If any of you studied psychology at some point, you probably learned about Harry Harlow. I worked in his lab. He was long gone at that point, but that lab still exists. I was a student caretaker responsible for over 500 monkeys at any given time. And so the thing about these labs and animal research in general is that this is a very powerful industry that largely goes kind of unquestioned and a lot of us are supporting it because our tax dollars support it. It's, it's a really hard thing, like, you know, emotionally as someone who has been on the inside and, and seen it and been a part of it, but also trying to speak out about it and trying to get others to speak out about it because you're afraid. Um, what ultimately happened though is as part of my mental health sort of journey, I started talking about it mostly on Instagram. <laughs> I've been utilizing social media, but other avenues. That is my first published op-ed. It happened like last month or two months ago now. But anyway, I started sharing stories, storytelling. And that has been really incredible because all of a sudden I've had former and even current animal lab workers from across the country reach out to me to tell me what it means to them to be hearing from someone like them who is speaking out against the industry and about their experiences and is receiving support and not criticism because we also receive criticism of like, how did you do that? Why did you stay so long? How could you, you know, all of these sort of, yeah, attacks for lack of a better description. So anyway, we've started creating this community that's called Justify, thinking about how and what we justify in our society. And throughout all of this, I think there's a lot of people who are not just sort of considering how we treat animals in labs and animals in general, but also how we treat the humans who are a part of this system and upholding the system and 
you know, how that's impacting our relationship with animals in general. So basically raising awareness and trying to make change. Thank you, Maddie, for the work you're doing, for sure. Okay, yes. <laughs> so we are rapidly coming to the conclusion of our panel. We have one final question. And I'm just going to ask everybody to take a brief moment, if you're comfortable, to close your eyes. You don't have to, whatever you're comfortable with, including the panelists. And just reflect for, I'm going to give you about 15 seconds of silence. Reflect on what you've experienced so far. You heard from Alice with her dogs, her guide dogs, and you've heard from these incredible panelists, their life stories and journeys on interweaving this topic of aging and the benefits that we're getting from these furry creatures that we love so much. And what is the main thing that is sparking for you? So I'm gonna go silent for a little bit. Okay, you can open your eyes. So if you're in the audience, I recommend holding on to that spark because you may want it later on in our discussions. But we're going to close out with a rapid round robin and we're just going to ask each of our panelists to share their spark. So maybe we'll start at the far end. I mean this end, Evan. <laughs> no, I'm happy to. We'll popcorn I'm, I'm happy okay, to. Great, Sharon. I am feeling really grateful and lucky to have found what I found to do in my life. And so I just have a gratefulness and to be here with, with so many people that kind of understand that. So mm. that's my spark right now. Well, I just I started thinking about you know my own parents that are elderly and we used to have a dog. We don't have one anymore. So it's not impossible to get a dog even though you're 80 years old because mm. the senior dogs, you know, they don't need to go for long walks, and they walk kind of slowly. So I was thinking that this is a great idea, and I will explore that a little more. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you, Annalie. I'm feeling inspired from being here with all of you, grateful, thinking about storytelling, and societal repair. Got yeah. work to do. Thank you, Evan. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm still reflecting on watching everyone's reactions to Alice's talk and just how that gives me hope because it shows that we all really have the capacity to not just think about how how our relationship with dogs is important but just in general like mutual relationships with animals and and yeah what our society looks like and and how it might be improved for for all of us thank you Thank you, Evan, Annalie, Maddie, and Sherry, so much. A round of applause for our panelists. And a round of applause for our incredibly skillful and mindful moderator, Chris. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of At Home On Air. A special thanks to our sponsors of our fourth annual Age In, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, Modern Elder Academy, Scott and Warner Builders, and the Community Living Campaign, as well as our collaborator, Ruth's Table, a San Francisco community arts nonprofit. 
At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life in the context of home. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode of At Home on Air. For more information about our programs and resources related to how best to age at home, visit us at at home with growing older.org.